Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. All right. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Judges is a good book too, but now we're in Joshua for the next few weeks. Uh, yes, last week we talked about hurdling the roadblocks. We learned a few lessons from the Battle of Jericho. Um, we established a theme for the book of Joshua to keep your courage because the Lord keeps his promises. And uh, to this point in the narrative, all we've seen are victories. Joshua and the people of Israel have experienced only victory. Now, here's the thing about that. Sometimes in life, a continual string of easy successes can actually create some ungodly qualities in a person, like, like, like boasting, like a stubborn self-reliance instead of God-dependence, uh, a bloated sense of self-importance. I mean, someone who never experienced loss might, they might eventually begin to, as they say, believe their press clippings, uh, think they're larger than life, invincible, can do no wrong, all that in a bag of chips. You know what I'm saying? That's a dangerous mindset because at the root of such thoughts lies pride. And we know what Proverbs 16, 18 says about pride. That pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So remember, all these victories that have been experienced so far, they've all come from God. Now, here's the problem in, in uh, Joshua chapter 7, not Judges. Here's the problem. At the victory over Jericho... God had instructed the people to place all of the spoils, the silver, the gold, the bronze, the iron, into the Lord's treasury. But this dude named Achan had another idea. Let's kind of sort all that out, shall we? Read along with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 together, and then we'll kind of fill in some of the rest as we go. But Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says, the Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all of our people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from the outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. 
Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. And then the next few verses to follow explain how God supernaturally revealed to Joshua who the culprit was. Uh, we know it's, it's a guy named Achan. And as a result of his unfaithfulness, his deception, and his disobedience, the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. That actually led to their defeat at Ai. And as we'll see a bit later on, also led to some great calamity for Achan and his family. So chapter 7 is not a, a, a story of victory like chapter 6 was. It's a story of defeat. 36 men were dead and the army was running scared. And I think really the big idea behind this passage in Joshua chapter 7 is this, that the sinful actions of one can have consequences for many. No doubt Joshua, he was confused, he was puzzled. Certainly he had expected an unbroken string of victories, a, a winning season, as it were. Of course, they'd just come off this huge victory as they took the city of Jericho, yet they were inexplicably defeated at I. But here's the thing about defeat. God can actually use that. He can actually assign redemptive purposes to that. Defeat can teach us some things. For example, it teaches us that the pain of loss will fill us with more resolve and determination not to repeat the same errors. It teaches us that God can use crisis and loss to purify us from our very rebellion that probably caused all the troubles to begin with. Defeat can simplify our focus. Defeat can actually unify us. Now, it probably unifies us in, in sort of a, a fellowship of suffering of sorts, but it, it is a unifier. Of course, victory is God's desire. Always has been, always will be. Both for the Israelites and the then and there, and for you and I in the here and now. And if we'll be obedient, God will provide every avenue to make victory possible. At the same time, though, he doesn't make defeat impossible. You see, God created us with free will. We get to make our own choices. So we make choices every day that can lead us to either victory or defeat. But too often we choose to go our own way. And sin comes as a result. But remember, a failing in life does not necessarily make life a failure. 
As a Christ follower, when we experience defeat, it doesn't have to be lasting defeat. All right, so, so three thoughts this morning, three pegs we're going to hang our hats on this morning uh, that we observe from the text. Here's the first one. We see the curse that's here. The curse that's here. Look at verse 11 with me. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And so Joshua reminds them, you know, he reminds the Israelites that all that gold, the silver, the, the bronze, the iron, that was supposed to have been kept holy to the Lord. In fact, we see that instruction in chapter 6, verse 19. But uh-oh, here's this dude named Achan who decides to take a portion of that treasure for himself. And he violates the commands of God. And as a result of Achan's sin, God removed his hand of blessing and protection from the Israelites. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. Because God never honors disobedience. Now, unfortunately, you and I, we, we've got this tendency to uh, sometimes de-emphasize the enormity of our own sin. One of the ways we do that is we, uh, we rename it. We give our sin a different label. You know, oh, well, I made, I made a simple mistake. Or, no, that, that was just a miscalculation. Or, uh, I experienced a moral failure. Oh, we, you know, it's only just a little white lie. Hey, it's still a lie. Oh, it's just an alternative lifestyle. So here's the problem with renaming our sin. There was once an old Methodist preacher named Dr. Blank who often spoke on the subject of sin, and he meant no words. He defined sin as that abominable thing that God hates. Well, a leader in his congregation came to him on one occasion and urged him to cease using that ugly word. He said, Dr. Blank, we wish you wouldn't speak so plainly about sin. Our young people hearing you will be more likely to indulge in sin. Call it something else, inhibition or error or mistake or even a, a twist in our nature. I understand what you mean, the preacher remarked, and going to his desk, brought out a little bottle. This bottle, he said, contains strychnine. Now you will see that the red label here reads poison. Now would you suggest that I change the label and paste one on that says wintergreen? The more harmless the name, the more dangerous the dose. Or instead of trying to relabel our sin, sometimes we just we try to soften things by uh, maybe uh, trying to justify or rationalize our sin somehow. And, and in my mind, you know, I can hear Aiken going through all of the, the possible rationalizations. Well, you know, I, I, I'm entitled to these spoils. Or, hey, I did nothing wrong. I'm the victim here. You know, or, it's okay because God wants me to be happy. And this makes me happy. Man, do you know how many morally reprehensible things have been committed in the name of, oh, God just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy 
Because as you pursue holiness, he knows that the greatest joy there is comes from being in the center of his will. Oh, no one will know. I'm not hurting anyone. Wrong oh, buckaroo. God knows. And sin not only curses the sinner, it actually affects those around him too. It affects his spouse. It, it affects his family. Ever heard of the generational curse? And in this case, it even affected the entire nation. The Apostle Paul used a metaphor in his letter to the Galatian believers. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, he was using it to describe the effects of false teaching that can quickly spread to the entire church. Well, see, the, the same principle is actually at play here with the Israelites. Because leaven refers to any substance, you know, like yeast, that's used to produce fermentation in dough. It's the main ingredient that causes bread to rise in preparation for baking. And just as a very small amount of yeast will make a whole loaf of bread rise, here we find the sin of one man, Achan, contaminated the whole people. They all suffered because of his transgression. So the first thing we notice from the text here is the curse that's here. God had removed his hand of blessing and protection from the Israelites. But next we see the second thing. That is the cause that's clear. In verses 10 and 11, God told Israel that they had sinned. So apparently Achan wasn't the only person to blame for this calamity. All right then, so what caused this debacle at I? Well, I think one thing that's, that's fairly obvious to me, overconfidence. Look at verses 2 and 3. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all of our people here. Overconfidence. There was a small boy on a vacation trip with his parents. They visited the Grand Canyon. And the guide told them that the canyon had a depth of one mile. Well, the boy's parents gazed with rapture at this beautiful marvel of nature. And as they turned to leave, the boy just kind of leaned out over the, the rim of the canyon and he spit. That night he wrote in his diary, Today, I spit a mile. See, so many people focus on what they do and they miss the grandeur that's all about them. So is it possible that the Israelites somehow thought that that great victory at Jericho was by their own hand? Did they somehow miss the grandeur of God's supernatural displays of might as they thought to themselves, hey, I got this. Well, the answer is yes. Yes, they did. An attitude of overconfidence reduced the size of their army. And, and I, I got to believe their, their thinking went something like this. Well, you know, since we did really well at Jericho, let's not worry about such a small place like this. But see, they didn't do the work at Jericho. God did. I mean, yes, the people, they walked around the walls. 
But God brought them down. Their obedience had activated God's plan. Yes, they followed his directions, but he's the one who took care of business. It's kind of a recurring story in the Old Testament. Now, God's hand delivered his people from danger or bondage, but he does it in such a way that it's obvious it's by his hand and his hand alone that it was accomplished. Obviously, we saw that last week in our study of the Battle of Jericho. You see that in Judges chapter 7, Gideon and the, the, the 300 men armed with torches, trumpets, and jars, defeating 135,000 Midianites. You saw it in the book of Exodus with the 10 plagues, God moving supernaturally to force Pharaoh to let God's people go. God does this because he knows, he knows all too well that we're too eager to take the credit for our successes and victories. But how often do we actually succumb to that, that sort of thinking? I think Christians and even churches are susceptible to being overconfident and forgetting, as it says in 1 Samuel 17, that the battle is the Lord's. Overconfidence. You know, trying to stand in our own strength without dependence on God through prayer. Hey, that's just a recipe for defeat. But I think in addition to overconfidence, there's another reason at work here. And that's the most obvious of the two. That's disobedience. Disobedience. Look at the first part of verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. Again, the transgression of one man led to the implication of the entire nation. Kind of reminds me of the ball coach who punishes the entire team when one player flagrantly disregards the team rules. It's not only a powerful incentive to keep the players on the straight and narrow, but it's a poignant reminder of the concept of team. We move together. We practice together. We play together. We win together. We lose together. And in Achan's case, the whole nation bore the brunt of his selfishness. And likewise, when we harbor sin in our own hearts, we affect those people around us. I mean, like Achan, the sin in our lives, it touches our families, it touches our friends. It can even touch our churches. And if you don't believe me, ask any church who's had a staff member who sexually assaulted a church member. Ask the church in Bentonville, whose former youth pastor just last week was sentenced to 60 years in prison for 13 different criminal acts. It can gut a church spiritually, emotionally, even financially. The church becomes tainted to eyes on the outside looking in. And one of, when one of Christ's representatives does something that's so heinous, it sullies Christ's reputation. And church, may, we, may God have mercy on us if we ever turn a blind eye to something like that. I mean, we should be doing everything we can to protect each other from sin and its consequences. Back in 1982, the ABC Evening News reported on a bizarre work of art. It was a chair that was affixed to a shotgun. And it was to be viewed by actually sitting in the chair and staring down the barrel of the gun, which was loaded 
and it was actually set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment sometime in the next hundred years. Now, the more bizarre thing about this is that people waited in line to sit in that chair and stare down the barrel of that gun. They all knew the gun could go off at, at point blank range at any moment. But they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. Foolhardy? Oh, you betcha. Yet, many people who would never ever dream of sitting in that chair also live a lifetime gambling that they can get away with sin as they foolishly ignore the risk of destruction to both them and to those people around them because of their unrepentance. Even in the body of Christ, the whole body can suffer when those who are supposedly God's people don't repent of their sin. Are we then left without hope or, or help in the midst of self-defeat? Well, it's been said that it's bad to fall, but much worse to wallow in it. And there is good news that something can be done about it. So first we saw the, the curse that's here. God removed his hand of blessing and protection from the Israelites. Then we saw the cause that's clear, which was overconfidence and disobedience. But then there's a third thing I want you to notice from our text. That's the cure that's near. The cure that's near. So what do we do when we have disobeyed God? We kneel at the feet of Jesus the one who paid our penalty, and we confess our rebellion. We repent, and we seek his strength to go on. You've been reading in the news and seeing on social media about some of the spiritual awakenings going on at different college campuses in our country right now. And you know what one of the, one of the instigating factors in those spiritual awakenings was? Repentance. People getting real with God about things in their own life that need to be confessed. That's where a lot of it started. So confession is key. Look at verses 19 and 20. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you've done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in verse 21, Achan's personal confession kind of details the event. He explains how he saw the treasure, he coveted the treasure, and so he took some of it for his own. Then he confesses that he hid some of that treasure. Now, before you and I wag a finger of condemnation at Achan, let's be honest, how many times have we had to say that. Okay, I saw it. I coveted it. I took it. Now I'm trying to hide it. And, and don't sit there and think that you've never coveted anything because there's a, there's a lot more things than material possessions that we covet in life. You see, we often have an end in mind and we see a means to that end. And so we use that means, even if it is in direct opposition to God's way, disobedience to God. Oh, and then we justify, well, you know, 
I meant to help. Or I'm entitled to this. Or I only did it for the betterment of my church. <laughs> Actually, my first pastor, there was a deacon. Deacon Body caught him in a just a, a bald-faced lie. I mean, it was so, so grievous. And when confronted with this, he said, well, what I did, I only did for the betterment of my church. How can it better the body of Christ when it violates the teachings of Christ? See, when we rebel against God, God calls for a confession of our sin. The Greek word there for confess is homo logeo. Homo meaning the same, logeo meaning speak or say. Say the same. It means to say the same thing or to agree with. He desires that we see our sin the same way he sees it, as disobedience. I agree with you, God. I can't justify it. I can't sugarcoat it. My actions were sinful. Here's an important thing about confession, though. Confession without repentance, and that's empty. It's, it's meaningless. The person who is a compulsive gossip, habitual liar, who's mean-spirited and runs down other believers, the person who steals or kills or covets can say, God, please forgive me a thousand times, but it really changes nothing in your life if your confession is not tied to repentance. If you don't truly repent and turn away from those things, then it changes nothing about your life. All the empty forgive me's means nothing. Repentance is needed to go along with that. So for the one who's unwilling to humbly bend the knee before him, he will break it. So restoration after our defeat, after our sin, begins with confession. But there's another thing that we do. After confession, there must be correction. Look at verse 25. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. So sin brought defeat in the life of Israel. And Joshua and the people took Achan, his sons and his daughters, and all that they had to the edge of the city, and they, they stoned them. Now, I, I got to think that stoning was a pretty good corrective technique. You know, it gave people incentive to obey. Today, you know, we're kind of we're kind of hesitant to, to deal with sin in the body of Christ because we don't want to make waves. So a lot of us, we just kind of, we kind of, we go along to get along. We're so intent on trying to keep the peace that we actually condone sin by ignoring it. Or if we do want to deal with sin, a lot of times we're too busy trying to pick the speck out of a brother's eye while we ignore the log that's in our own eyes. And Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 7. So we must correct ourselves first. And the first best step to self-correction 
I think it's found in, in Psalm 139, 3 and 4. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul addressed a problem at Corinth. Believers at Corinth were, they were abusing the Lord's Supper by taking it in, a, in an unworthy manner. And he wrote in, in verses 28 through 30, he said, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. You know what, church? If we do not take steps to correct ourselves after we sin, God certainly will. God will go to extraordinary lengths to bring you back into right fellowship with Him. Uncomfortable lengths, even painful lengths to make sure that you are in the center of His will. If that's what it takes. Remember Jonah? Three days in the belly of this ginormous, stinky fish for his rebellion. And his story vividly illustrates the drastic lengths that God will go to to correct us when we disobey in order to bring us back into a proper fellowship with Him. Now in Judges chapter 7, Achan's sin brought tragic consequences. But you see, theologically speaking, sin brings death to us all. Remember what Paul wrote to the... Uh, the Roman believers in Romans chapter 5. In verse 12 he said, Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. You see, death didn't even exist until Adam sinned. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, now all of creation is cursed. All of creation, all mankind is affected by the presence of sin in this world. That is why there is disease. That's why there is decay. That's why there is death. Because sin entered the world. Why do natural disasters occur? Sin. Why do children get cancer? Sin. Why must we grieve the loss of a loved one? Sin. Now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that these things happen because someone's being punished for sin. I'm saying these things exist in our world because creation is cursed. Thanks to Adam's sin and sin entering into creation. All because they gave into temptation. Now, regarding temptation, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Okay, so what sort of death? Physical death? Spiritual death? Both? Possibly. Back in the 1980s, there was an acquaintance of mine in college. His name was uh, Greg. 
Greg knew Jesus. Greg was serving the Lord. But some of the sins of his past caught up with him. Greg died of AIDS. Now, in this case, the end result of his sin actually was literal, physical death. You see, church, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you will ever want to pay. Sin has consequences. In a month of Sundays, John Updike said, deceit has done you in. That's the trick about sin. It does end the doer. Or as Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he also will reap. Cause and effect, action and reaction. Sin comes with the prize. Now, for those who've chosen not to trust in Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, you see, sin has a much, much greater price than just mere physical death. You recall that Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Meaning, not only physical death, but eternal death in a place of everlasting torment called hell. You see, that is the, the ultimate consequence of sin. But thanks to Jesus, the ultimate consequence of your rebellion has been nullified. Now, despite that, when we sin, even though Jesus will forgive us, there are still some more intimate, more immediate consequences to deal with because of that. I mean, hey, if you cheat on your spouse, I'll trust that the existed in your marriage has been destroyed. If you steal from your employer, you will be terminated. If you covet something that belongs to your neighbor, you will always be unhappy. If you're cruel and you verbally tear down a Christian brother or sister, you not only damage your fellowship with them, you destroy the credibility of your Christian witness. Now note, in, in three of those four examples I just gave you, the transgression affects other people too. Just like Achan's effect on the whole of the Israelites, our sin does not take place in a vacuum. It will affect the people around you in some form or fashion. Of course, if you ask him, God will forgive you. And through Jesus, he will take away the ultimate consequences of sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But for Achan and his family in Joshua 7, the end consequence was pretty horrific. Now, before we wag our fingers at God and, and you know, somehow think maybe he was, he was too harsh, we need to remember that this same God this just and holy God who punished Achan also in his mercy took care of our sin problem. You see, the rest of Romans 6.23 says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's an old saying, he that sins is human. He that grieves over sin is a saint. He that boasts of sin is of the devil. He that forgives sin is God. 
See, under the terms of the old covenant, a transgression such as Achan's, that resulted in penalty of death. In his case, stoning. But under the new covenant in Jesus, there is forgiveness and restoration. The penalty has been paid for us. Yes, sin is unpleasant. It's not a popular thing to talk about. But that's the good news. He's taken away the consequence of our sin. He has paid the penalty. That is the gift of God that Paul talked about in Romans 6.23. Paul said in Romans 5.15, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many. See, because of our rebellion, God sent His Son, Jesus, as the ultimate solution for our sin. He bore our penalty on the cross. Okay, but what about the more immediate solution to our sin? What about the more, more intimate solution? Well, for you and I, Christians, the, that solution is really, it's confession, repentance, and surrender. We confess our sin. God, I agree with you. What I did was sinful. It was disobedient. I know it displeased you, so I agree with you. But then we repent. We change our mind about the way we've been living, and we turn away from those actions. But then we surrender. We surrender to the conviction, to the authority, to the leadership, to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, knowing that the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is what keeps us from going back into the same sin patterns over and over and over again. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.